0: Ever been right in the middle of some sort of a, an enjoyable activity or or something, and then you're interrupted by the reminder that it's not going to be permanent? Um, Leanne and I got to go see a, a comedian that we enjoy, and I had to... Uh, remind myself to not be distracted from the fact that it was only one hour of laughter and then it was going to be over, and then uh, back to life and back to reality. Uh, maybe you've had a relaxing vacation rudely interrupted by the reminder that you have to go back to life and work soon, and it kind of just breaks that special moment. Uh, I think it's part of the futility of life in a fallen world that good things don't last. Movies and stories almost always end on a happy note. I know there are tragedies, but uh, our world doesn't seem to like those at all. Uh, The happy couple uh, embraces one another, or the hero or heroes ride victoriously off into the sunset, but... um, there doesn't seem to be anything original happening story-wise today. So you know whatever movie happens successfully, that there will be a sequel. And in the intervening time, uh, that happy couple who embraced each other uh, isn't so happy anymore. Something happened. Or the, the hero riding victoriously off into the sunset now has a new enemy to face. Uh, rude awakenings abound in our lives. That's kind of how I feel when I read the end of Genesis 2. And think of the innocent, satisfied joy of the first couple in the garden that God had made for them. Uh, A part of me doesn't want to keep reading, Uh, but we must. Genesis chapter 3. I see three parts to this as we just work through the narrative. There's the deceptive creature, the disastrous choice, and the divine confrontation. We'll start with the first, the deceptive creature, Genesis chapter 1 chapter 3, excuse me, verse 1 begins this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The first question that we want to ask then really is who is this serpent? Like where did he come from? Well, what we know is that he's crafty. Interestingly, the word crafty, this same word that's used here is not always negative. In Proverbs, for example, people are generally uh, described as simple, foolish, or wise. The simple are immature, they are gullible, perhaps ignorant. The foolish stubbornly reject God and his word. The wise fear the Lord and walk in his ways. Really, you have this simple uh, being able, coming up to a, a choice where w- are they going to go oh, down into foolishness and in, in its varieties, or are they going to move up into wisdom? Uh, you and I also fall into one of those categories. We are simple, um, and as we move from simplicity, are we moving into foolishness, or are we moving into wisdom? Uh, listen to what Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 5. Oh, simple ones, right, that first category, learn prudence which would be a way to move from simplicity into wisdom. Prudence in Proverbs and crafty in Genesis chapter 3 are the same word. So it can be either positive, the simple moving to wisdom, or it can be negative. Because having a, a shrewd or crafty, right, a shrewd awareness of life and how things work and how people think can be a blessing if used wisely to draw you and draw others to God. That's the positive. Um, or it could be used foolishly, craftily to lead people away from God. Interestingly, we are told by Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 to be wise as serpents. That really can't be anything other than some aspect of a reference here leaning on that, those two ways that that prudence or shrewdness or craftiness could be used this same type of shrewd cunning knowing how people think, how people work, how things in life works that could take people toward wisdom could be a blessing is that type of cunning is a curse if used to entice others away from god and that cursing is clearly the type of craftiness that the sermon demonstrates here if i said now, Satan was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Instead of serpent, you probably wouldn't be surprised. But interestingly, the text of Genesis never makes that connection. This introduces the, the serpent just either slithers or crawls in, crafty, and moves forward. Um. This exact connection in Genesis maybe is is hinted at, even assumed throughout Scripture, but we need to go all the way to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, to know that our assumptions were correct. This is where it's first stated outright who this serpent is. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Who is this serpent? He's the slanderer and accuser of God's people, the enemy of God. Yet here he appears as a sly, crafty, cunning serpent. Lest you think that Satan is an opposite evil power, equal to God's good power, Moses just writes of him as yet another lowly creature. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, maybe you should elongate those S's, say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What is the serpent suggesting here? One commentator suggested that uh, shaping this not as a question, but as an expression of shock and surprise. In other words, the crafty serpent slithers up and says, I cannot believe that God won't let you eat of, of any of the fruit in this garden Wow this is an exaggeration of God's prohibition uh, it ignores the goodness of the rest of the garden and it begins to portray God not as he is but rather as a caricature we you know what a caricature is right you find the you find some little defining characteristic and you, you reshape it to make a person, instead of looking normal, uh, to look uh, outrageous or to look ridiculous. right? And it's, it's laughable when it's us at a fair or um, wherever caricature artists might be, probably apps that do that now. Uh, but it's not amusing when it comes to God. We are not to exaggerate who he is. We're not to, to take one thing and blow it up as if it's everything and then ignore other parts of it. And that's exactly what the serpent is doing here. The serpent is questioning God's character by questioning God's word. And that's an important point because who God is and what God says are always linked together. You cannot pick and choose different things about God to hold to. His word actually reveals his character to us, and not just his word as in the Bible, but his words, because his word is his words, proceeding from his mouth. His word reveals his character to us, and all of his word is consistent with all of his character. See, God is good, and his word is true, those things are linked together. So as the serpent questions God's word, he's attacking God's character and his goodness. Eve responds to this veiled accusation, correcting the misconception and apparently coming to the rescue of God's character. Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And maybe that causes you to kind of raise your eyebrow a little bit. Wait, wait a minute, don't, don't touch it? Like where, did, where did that come from? Well, let's refresh ourselves on what God said. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, that the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God's command was don't eat, not don't touch. And we could make maybe a lot out of this. Maybe we're supposed to, maybe we're not. But as God's people, we must be careful to remember and communicate his words carefully and correctly. Uh, There are dangers found in both adding to and subtracting from God's word. Uh, But again, that may not be the emphasis here. So we'll just move on. Verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent moves so quickly, cunningly, craftily, from a, that subtle question right to a direct contradiction. You will not surely die. Whoa! I mean, you hear what he's saying. Uh, God is wrong, or God is lying. God is deceiving you. There will be no negative consequences from ignoring this silly restriction. And in fact, if you think about it, God isn't actually good at all. He's, he's withholding the best things from you, He's keeping you from becoming all that you could be without Him. Without him. What is the root of Satan's lie here? I think that it could be summarized as this Independence from God is better than dependence on God. I think that's what he's saying. That's what he's suggesting. That's what he's subtly trying to lead her to and then outright pushing into her face. Independence from God is better than dependence on God. The serpent promises divine knowledge that can't be achieved by following God, can't be achieved by waiting on God, can't be achieved by trusting God. You can get what you want uh, by yourself, alone, without God. Uh, By independence from God, you will become like God. You will become equal with God, apart from God. It won't be any of this nonsense, right? By being God and you, you're keeping yourself from actually, he's keeping you down. You rise up equal with God. If you'll just move out from that dependence, that is not the only place. This is not the only place where Satan uses this strategy. I think he employs a similar strategy in his temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. I don't know if you thought through the nature of those three temptations that we see listed in the Gospels, I think you could summarize them this way. Don't wait for your father. Feed yourself. The Spirit led him to go fast. No, 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 no. Don't don't wait for him. Feed yourself. Don't follow your father's path. Take authority for yourself by worshiping me. Don't trust your father's word. Prove to yourself that he will protect you independence from God. See, listen carefully, please, everyone. There are many ways for us to listen to this lie and live in sinful independence of God. Many ways. Many ways that we are able to stumble. We can live in an unrighteous independence, ignoring his commands, and we see that clearly, and we seek to avoid that, perhaps. You're here on a Sunday morning to come and worship the Lord, uh, so I would say that you probably do want to avoid living in an unrighteous independence, ignoring God's commands, but we can also live in a righteous independence, obeying by our own strength, obeying in order to prove to ourselves and to others, maybe even to prove to God how strong we are, how able we are to obey, how we really don't need anybody. We really don't even need God's help. We can do it on our own. Be like Christ without Christ's help. Independence from God. Both of these, righteous independence, righteous air quotes, independence, unrighteous independence, both are well-worn paths to destruction. Spiritual life only exists independent trust on God. D independent sounds a little bit, I need a better preposition. Uh, by dependent trust in God and on God. Spiritual life cannot exist at all independent of Him. If you live this life Independent of God, righteously or unrighteously. If you are living independent of God, you will spend eternity independent of God. Cast out of his glorious presence to suffer his wrath. If there's no life now, spiritually, independent of God, then there's no life eternally independent of God. That's the lie. Independence is better than dependence when it comes to God. We are all in a danger that is similar to Eve here. Listen to Paul make that very point. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he writes this to the Corinthian church. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In a nutshell, there is the test, I think, of our dependence on God. Are we steadily growing in love for Jesus, our Savior? Because a dependence on God, reliance on his Spirit, will move us in that direction. So if we aren't, then how can we say that we're living dependently on him? If it's not toward the end that he has in mind for us. Are we steadily growing in love for Jesus? prayerfully ask the Lord if that is true of your relationships and your study passions and your hobbies and your entertainment and your career pursuits and your spending of money, etc. Are you being led to a sincere and pure devotion to Christ or are you being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ? Because there is no neutrality. Increasingly, a pure and sincere devotion to Christ, or you're being led from it. And naturally, since this, these moments in the garden, our hearts are always moving away. It is a battle of repentance to turn to a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It is not automatic, no matter what the pursuit is. We are also all in danger of playing the part of the serpent here. Do you tempt others to sin? Do you promote the rejection of God's word? Do you dishonor the character of God to other people? Remember Jesus' words in Mark chapter 9. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, not just children, believers, disciples, It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Whatever cunning you may have, whatever wisdom, whatever prudence, don't be led into folly. Don't lead others into folly. Be led into wisdom. Lead others into wisdom. But then we could come to this, and there's another response that we could have, or maybe something else. Like, as so I look at this, and I ask, is it wrong to question God? Be interesting. We did this as a as a poll, and everybody write down their answer. I wonder where we would land. We'd all have reasons for that. Is it wrong to question God? H- have you ever asked questions like these? Is God really good? Uh, is, is his word, the Bible, is it really true? Is there a God at all? Where is the promise of his coming? Christ claims that faith in him must be ultra-exclusive. Is it really true that all other religions are completely wrong and false, the teachings of demons like Paul claims? have asked questions like, are heaven and hell real? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Have you ever asked these kinds of questions? I know that I have. Matter of fact, I still find myself asking questions like these. Is it wrong for us to ask questions about God and his character and his word and his gospel? I think that some Christians would strongly say yes if you marked an answer. Maybe you said yes that it is wrong for us to ask these kinds of questions as if faith requires no questions and as if faith allows no doubts. And sadly, when this is how Christianity is presented, it produces either simple, immature Christians who are unprepared for life in a fallen world, or it drives doubters and questioners into the arms of unbelievers who will provide answers, but their answers will be serpent-like and encourage independence from God. Is it wrong for us to ask these kinds of big, hard questions, or whatever your big, hard question is? Is it wrong for us to ask? No, I don't think that it is. I think it is normal. I think that it is, is natural as we think about the world that we live in, our hearts and the hearts of those around us, God's plan that we don't fully understand. I would so go, go so far as to say it is even good and necessary for us to ask these questions, as long as we run to God, to his word, and to his people with these questions, rather than running from God, from his word, and from his people with our questions. Come to God's word with your questions. It can handle and answer them. Bring your doubts before him in prayer. Ask him to teach you and to increase your faith. One of the most potent prayers in the Bible is one of the shortest. Shortest, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Children, I hope that you have questions. It means that you're thinking. And I want you to think. And I want you to read. And I want you to study because I want you to know God. And I want you to know his word. And I want you to know about his ways. Bring your doubts to your parents. Bring your questions. And parents, you know that they do, but it's always at like after 930 at night. Right? And Leanne's helped me be like, but we got to answer those questions. I'm like, but I want to go to sleep. Like dads go to sleep. Moms stay up and they answer those questions. Moms are wonderful like that. Dad, stay up a little bit later than you want to. Peter, stay up later than you want to. All of you, come to us as elders and pastors with your questions and doubts. What are we here for if not to equip you in your faith? Let us pursue growing in our dependent trust in our God together. To God, to his word, to his people, not from God, from his word and from his people. And when you are tempted to sin, and you will be tempted to sin. When? When? You are tempted to sin. Remember and trust that God is good and his word is true. If this were my story, here's what would have happened next. Then, the man grabbed that crafty beast, ripped its lying forked tongue out of its mouth, and stomped it to death for trying to deceive his wife and dishonor his God. That's not what happened. Instead, from the deceptive creature, we now move to the disastrous choice, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is the question that I ask first. What's this tree doing here? Why? Why plant the tree? Right? It's like the tree is the problem. Uh, the tree isn't the problem. If this hasn't come to your mind yet, it, it will someday. I'll go ahead and introduce it for you. Why did God plant the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden? Was God himself tempting them to disobey? Far from being a bad thing in the garden, the tree was actually absolutely necessary. It, it had to be there. It was good for it to be there. And it was necessary and good because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were not allowed to eat from provided an opportunity for Adam and Eve to demonstrate their loyalty to God and their trust in God. The first chapter of the book of James makes two truths clear. Not preaching in James, good to do that, maybe at some point, but again, we're already going to be two years in Genesis, so we can't make decisions about that yet. But James chapter one makes two truths clear. First, that the testing of our faith is good. And if it's good, it's from God. And second, that God does not tempt us with evil. And sometimes those words could actually be used a little bit interchangeably. I'm going to keep them separate just for the sake of this. Testing versus temptation. Tempting versus testing. And I don't think that there are two different circumstances. There's not a circumstance of temptation and a circumstance of testing. There's actually one circumstance with two different responses. Or or two different paths that could come, two different responses to the same choice. There's a path from every choice, from every tree. There's a path and a purpose of testing, and there's a path and purpose of temptation. But from the same circumstance. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a perfect test case for this, because you and I face a lot of trees like this. Big and small. Let's just make sure we're on the same page. Who planted this tree in the garden? God did. Okay? Number one, have to have that fig. He put it there. And and then who prohibited them eating from it? God did. Did God plant this tree and give this command to tempt or to entice or allure them to sin against him? No, God is not tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And we really don't have to run all the way to James to find that out. Scripture doesn't leave us in like uh, this uncertainty about that. Obviously, the God who speaks things that are good and is himself good would not be luring to evil. That's not who God is. But then why did he plant it there? Why did he prohibit them from eating it? It was to test, not tempt, to test them to test their dependent, trusting, loving obedience to him. It was an opportunity for them to live righteously. Without it, they were like students at the beginning of a semester. Everyone has a perfect GPA before any assignments are due or any tests are given. But that opportunity that was given to test we could even say to prove loving loyalty toward God, submission to his authority, that same, that test was twisted into a temptation by Satan. That's why Paul calls him the tempter in 1 Thessalonians. What is temptation like? We learn about temptation even as we watch Eve being tempted, verse 6. For Eve, her eyes saw and her heart was captivated by the tree because it was good for food and a delight to the eyes and to be desired to make one wise. Another translation says, she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. This temptation enticed her physically, uh, emotionally, spiritually perhaps we could say. That looks Looks delicious and emotionally, right? Ah, that's, that's a delight. And it's like, oh, and spiritually, I want that wisdom. I want that godlikeness, the spiritual aspect of that. Everything in her wanted everything that she believed she could get only from that tree. Everything in her, in her cried out and yearned for it. She was drawn to all aspects of it, and in doing that, she was rejecting God's goodness and believing that God had deceived her. This is what I want, and the only path to getting what I want, what I need, is by rejecting God. So she rejected God's word. She believed the serpent's lies. Do you feel the covetousness crowding out the contentment that she had known? the satisfaction that she had throughout chapter two and however brief her life had been to this point, she was content in who God was and who she was and relationships and provision. She was satisfied. And then all of a sudden, that temptation worms its way in and says something is missing. Something's missing from your life, and it's God's fault. She had been satisfied, not just with the other trees in the garden, she'd been satisfied with God. Now she was convinced that she was missing out and that it was God's fault. The Apostle John wrote about similar allurements, temptations that we face, and he called these temptations, First John calls them the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it's very likely that he's linking those with this, this very, account. I've heard that portion of uh, first John paraphrased as the, the desire to do and the desire to have and the desire to be apart from loving obedience to God. On the one hand, these are natural desires. Food, from God, beauty from God, knowledge or, or wisdom from God. Right? Like she was created to want these things. That that wasn't the aspect of it. These desires, they are natural. They are designed to be gifts from God. But all gifts from God must be used within the boundaries that God has set. Accepting God's gifts while rejecting God's boundaries is, I think, the, the essence of the rebellious ingratitude of sin. We want what God offers, but we don't want God, and we don't want his rule over us. How often have you and I both, how often have we been convinced, like Eve was, that we are missing out on our best life now? If I just... Then I'll be wise. If I just then I'll feel good physically, emotionally, spiritually. If I just, then I'll be happy. Then then I'll be powerful. I'll be in charge. Then I'll be popular. If I just, then I'll be rich. Then I'll be safe. Or, Or then I'll finally be loved and accepted. If I just, then I won't be missing out anymore. And we're convinced that God isn't powerful enough or isn't loving enough to give us what we want, what we're convinced that we need. He either can't or he won't do what is best for us, so we will take it for ourselves independent of him. That's the nature of temptation. Never once has sin kept its word, or delivered on its grandiose offers to make us more like God. Never once has sin satisfied a single human being. Pleasures of sin for a season. Stolen stolen bread tastes sweet, and then in the stomach it's bitter. Sin cannot make us wise, it cannot leave us satisfied, and it cannot make us free. Sin gives us to drink cups full of salt water leaving us more thirsty rather than satisfying us. Sin gives us junk food devoid of nourishment and capable only of creating more cravings for itself. Sin is the worst of drugs, giving a brief high followed by a lasting shame-filled withdrawal. This past week, I saw an article. Uh, A man, uh, I guess, took from his savings and and bought a, a car uh, a Dodge Challenger Hellcat, not a car guy. If you're a car guy, then you know that that's cool. He paid $26,000 for this Dodge Challenger muscled up. Uh, this That car normally would start around $76,000 and then go up. So he is just getting a steal on this car, literally. Because it turns out the car was actually a rental And he ended up for $26,000 with a fake title and no car, which reminds me a lot of what sin promises. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And sin's promises are always too good to be true because they're lies. It's exactly how temptation to sin works. If we are ever to have victory over the temptation to sin, we must be dependent on God. Knowing his word accurately and thoroughly, we must trust him. We must trust his power and his goodness and his sufficient grace, which are ours only through Christ Jesus. And that's, that's that center of dependence on God. It's not you trying, it's you trusting in Jesus and what he has done. That is the heartbeat of dependence on God. That is the only way for you to be satisfied and free and happy now and eternally. Dependence on God, submission and trust in Jesus. We must remember God is good and his word is true. But as we look at this, I think another difficult question arises from this passage, which is how exactly is it that Adam and Eve could sin? We'll talk about this a little bit later, but like I know, I know why we sin. But I've often struggled to be like, but how did they sin? Like, we sin because we're sinners. Uh, they weren't. So how is it? Uh, after all, they had been created by God without sin, and they were declared to be very good. Uh, this is a deep theological, philosophical question. If you're inclined to deep reading and thinking, you can, you can battle with Augustine on this, or, or maybe even better, read Jonathan Edwards on this topic it would be the, the freedom of the will as he wrestles with aspects of these things. But here's what I, I hope will be a helpful summary regarding the, the will, What's, uh, which I mean by that I mean our choosing faculty. Again, try not to be too deep about this uh, because I don't understand it more. Our secret. It's my best summary regarding the will and, and sin. When Adam and Eve were first created, they were apparently... Able to sin and able not to sin. Apparently, their hearts were were somehow equally open to the influences of God's goodness on the one hand and the allurements of sin on the other. Another person described this, that God created man originally. He created him flexible. Interesting. Able to sin, able not to sin. But now, because of Adam's sin... Which again, Lord willing, we're going to be talking about that more specifically in a few weeks. But because of Adam's sin, human nature was changed. So whereas they were born able to sin, able not to sin, now we are born able to sin and not able not to sin. Right, which is just two ways of saying the same thing. This is where a lot of people get hung up, I think, in regard to our free will. That they want to posit as if everybody born is in the same position that Adam and Eve were. Able to sin, able not to sin. But scripture does not leave that open to the rest of us. We are able to sin and not able not to sin. That's the slavery that we have. Or what Luther would have called the bondage of our will. Which really isn't in disagreement with Edwards. They're just saying two different things. We no longer stand equally between two options like Adam and Eve did in the garden that day. We have sinful natures. We are held captive to our own sinfulness. We are bent toward evil. Our wills are influenced, steered by our evil hearts. And there's nothing that we can do to change that on our own. As Jeremiah said, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good Right? Who are accustomed to evil? Can't make yourself taller, shorter, hairier, or less, uh, darker, or lighter. It just doesn't work. A leopard can't make itself a zebra. That's not its nature. Our nature is now one that is bound to sin. But when we are born again, when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, when we trust in Christ and are, are made new, we are once again able not to sin. But we remain able to sin as well. A little bit more Adam-like, but not the same. Because we're moving away from one to the other. We're moving from being influenced by sin to being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is that ongoing war taking place in our hearts between our sinful flesh and the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about that in Galatians 5, and I think he's also talking about that in, in Romans chapter 7. But it's not the end of the story, because once we are glorified, Christ comes back, brings us to himself, we will be like our Savior Jesus Christ, who eternally now is not able to sin. That's what Jesus is like Glorified, that's what we will be like. One day, on that day, when we see him and we're made like him, we will no longer be able to sin. Thanks be to God, we will one day be completely freed from our sinful hearts, delivered from these bodies of death through the victory of Jesus Christ our Lord. And In verse 6, Genesis again, notice the abrupt simplicity of sin. Like the way that it's written, it just sort of rapid fires. She took and ate and gave him and he ate. Just like like that. Boom, boom, boom. Just whoa. So fast. Just like that. We find the keeper, the guarder, uh, the leader not keeping or guarding or leader leading. And we find the helper not helping. But those simple sins happened because they had chosen to believe the lie that God was not good and his word was not true. Have you ever noticed how simple it is to sin? So simple. Just like these rapid fire choices. Just just tap. Just watch. Just steal. Just just lie. Just complain. Just gossip. Our sins, no matter how automatic, quick, how inevitable they seem, our sins are also a rejection, the result of a rejection of God and a rejection of his word. You don't just sin inevitably and quickly and automatically. It is the fruit of you doubting God and his word. You are rejecting his authority, just like Eve did. We are never so innocent as we would like to think, are we? We are not passive victims of our own sin. We are active participants, just like Adam and Eve. Their sin was simple and quick, but it was devastating. And now there was no going back. Be sure your sin will find you out. There's no escaping the consequences of disobedience. Verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. Expectations versus reality. You seen the uh, like the making of the images for like a Big Mac commercial. Seen that. Right, it's like some of that. Those, are, I think, they are by law, some law, required to use the actual ingredients. But then, cosmetic food artists like build them to where they, you know, the Big Mac. I don't know if you knew it. Like, a Big Mac is like this big, I think, technically. And have you seen the side by sides of what like the artist created Big Mac looks like, and then the store created Big Mac? <laughs> Expectations versus reality. Is there truth or is there falsehood in advertising? What about when people advertise themselves on social media profiles or posts? Is there an honesty and a transparency or is every vacation day sunny and perfect hair days? And kids are obedient and the house is cleaned, at least wherever in frame. The rest of it may be a disaster, but this part looks perfect. Every meal is spotless is the expectations of those things versus the reality of what life is actually like. See, after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, their expectations were not met, and they were hit by reality like a ton of bricks smashing into their faces and their souls. Everything changed, but it wasn't what the serpent had promised. Adam and Eve didn't feel powerful or wise. They felt naked. They felt ashamed. Instead of feeling more like God... More like him, they felt far away from God. They also felt far away from each other. Now, that, now they knew that they were naked, and they tried to cover their shame by making clothes out of fig leaves. The extent of the serpent's lie now begins to be revealed. Were they like God? No. Matter of fact, they had never been less like God. But did they now know evil? Yes. Yes. Evil in themselves and evil in each other, along with the shame before God and others that our evil, sinful hearts bring. And they responded to that shame with pathetic, futile attempts to cover themselves. How sad that the nakedness that was formerly understood to be a sign of a healthy relationship between the man and woman in chapter 2, verse 25 has now become something unpleasant and filled with shame, which is why we read verse 25, and you might be like, oh, that's kind of weird. This is why. If this were my story, here's what would have happened next. And they heard the thunder of the Lord God and were blinded by the glory of his majesty. He destroyed the man. The woman and the serpent, for their defiance of his will, leaving their lifeless corpses to rot back into the dust from which they had been formed, and the Lord God himself reigned in righteousness over his remaining creatures, the end. But that's not what happened. Instead, after the deceptive creature and the disastrous choice, we see the divine confrontation. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking. The man said, the the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, "The, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The man and his wife, they should have trusted God. They should have obeyed God. But, but having failed to do that, they should have called out to God and they should have run to him for mercy and for forgiveness, throwing themselves at his feet. That's what they should have done, but they didn't. Instead, they run from him and they hide. And amazingly, here we learn more of what God is like, right? We, we've, he's eternal and he's creator and he's... He's brilliant and he's wise and he's uh, he provides and he has all of these different things that we and he's and he's good and all this right. We just keep learning all of these things about God and then we're we're introduced with a new scenario. We wonder what will God be like when here. We learn that God is a good shepherd who seeks his lost and wandering sheep. And he tenderly asks questions to draw them out of hiding rather than sternly accusing them outright, which he had every right to do, but that's not what he does. He didn't drop into the garden with a thunderclap and say, You ate of the tree. Just walks in. It's amazing. Hey, where are you guys? Which he knows. How do you know that you're naked? He knows. <laughs> Did you eat? He knows. He's asking them questions to try to draw them out of themselves. But just like we do, they don't humble themselves. They don't confess. Instead, they shift the blame to others. They make accusation. Adam first accuses God. Well, the woman that, you know, you put here with me, some helper, thanks. Thanks. Maybe it would have been better off with just a dog or a rhinoceros. The woman you put here with me. And then he accuses the woman. Well, she gave me some fruit from the tree. You, her. And then he finally briefly admits his wrong. And, well, I mean, yeah, I, I ate. He leaves that part until the end. It's like delaying the reality of it. And the woman follows soup. Well, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. If the Lord allows the next two weeks, we're going to cover this next section, verses 14, uh, really to the end of the chapter, which is the dire consequences. The dire consequences that came from this. But we're not, we're not covering that right now. It is there. But I think one of the most difficult questions that we could ask about this passage as a whole, especially up to this point, is uh, was the fall an accident? Right? Where, where, was, where was God? Where had he been? Did, did he know that this was happening? Yes. Did, uh, was he late in arriving to the garden for his daily walk? Did he not care that his children were in danger? Was he powerless to stop the deception of the serpent and the disobedience of his children? Or to put it more directly, was the fall an accident or was it part of God's plan? And that really is a very significant question for, for you to wrestle with. You need to wrestle with that. Like You cannot avoid this question. You can't go through the rest of the Bible without having an answer to this. Was the fall an accident or was it part of God's plan? Because see, in Genesis so far, we've seen God's omnipotence, his limitless power on display in the creation of the universe. We've seen God's wisdom and his glory on display in its variety of creation, all these different like. Land animals and birds and fish and all these different types of plants, some with fruit, some without, different types of lights for the day and for the night, the water and the land, all of these different things. It's been amazing to see God's wisdom, his glory on display in the beauty and the bounty of creation. We've seen God's goodness on display, his love on display, very specifically in the creation and care of the man and the woman in those intimate fatherly terms that we talked about from those passages. And everything that we have seen prior to this story has been perfectly in line with God's plan. God said and it happened, right? Absolute, instantaneous, sovereign control. And God has been sitting on his throne, ruling as king over creation since he ceased from his work on the seventh day. However long that was to this, which we don't know. Probably not long. And so so from everything that we've learned about God so far, just in Genesis 1 and 2, we must conclude that the fall was also part of God's plan. It happened by his sovereign permission. For nothing can happen that he does not permit. Nothing He alone has absolute power that could prevent any event, large or small. So when he does not prevent something, it means that he has permitted it. Everything is part of God's perfect, eternal plan. Everything, everything. No asterisk, no caveat, no exception. Everything. He is absolutely sovereign over everyone and everything. This is foundational for our understanding of the world. It is clearly revealed across scripture. If we have eyes to see it, by that kind of means, if we are willing to submit ourselves and our desires to God and his word, then we will see it because it's there and it really is there clearly. God's eternal plan was not merely to display his power and his goodness in the creation of a very good universe. God's perfect eternal plan has always been to display his mercy and his grace in saving, rescuing, redeeming, or we could even say recreating his people and his world from the destruction of their sin. Not just, look how powerful I am. And he's done that. He does it every day. But without the fall, how do we know that God is merciful, which he is eternally? Without that compassionate, gracious work of re-creation, which is what our salvation is, a recreating into the image of our creator, a renewing of those things, That's how, that's why God's people have been chosen and known since before, not before the fall, or not since the fall, before the foundation of the world. Multiple New Testament passages. Chosen before the foundation of the world. Known, that's an intimate, that's a love word, loved before the foundation of the world. Revelation even speaks, and there's a translation question here, but I think it's communicating this, that Jesus is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. How could Jesus's death as a sacrifice for sin be part of God's perfect eternal plan if the fall of humanity into that sin was also not a part of God's perfect eternal plan? You don't get to have a sacrifice for sin in the eternal mind of God, part of his plan, if there's not a fall that requires that. No fall, no death on the cross. So if the death on the cross was part of the eternal purpose of God, then so was the fall. And if the fall, then everything else. What shall we say to these things? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. If this were my story, I would have written it differently. But that's because I'm stupid. Or to put it kinder, because I'm not wise enough to understand its perfection. Any objections that you or I have to this story or any improvements that we would like to make would be wrong. We can't improve God's story. And it is God's story. And the same thing that is true there of Genesis 3, that there's nothing wrong with this story. Again, not talking about the, it was horrible. It's not like God was like, ha ha, this is great that they sinned, as if God takes delight in sin. No, he doesn't, right? We talked about it before, probably a whole other sermon, but there's that which God has ordained for his glory and that which he commands, that which he takes a delight in. And he never delights in sin, just as he never tempts. But the temptation of Adam and Eve was not an accident. Part of God's plan, even though it wasn't caused by God himself. And again, that's that, how does that work? Well, they're both true however we want to wrestle with them. But the same is true for our own stories. This is God's world. We are God's creatures. This is God's story. Ordained or predetermined from eternity past, God's story is perfect. God is good. His word is true. And his plan is perfect. As you are tempted this week, this is what you must turn back to. This is what Adam and Eve should have remembered. God is good. His word is true. And as we look at them, we look at us, we look at whatever, we must remember his plan is perfect. As I was studying this week, there's one other thing that was just too good to not share with you. I don't know if you've noticed this, we've been studying in student service and trying to help the, the students and ourselves, I point to Robbie, Smiko as well, as we've, we've tried to help see like when, when a part of scripture sounds like another part of scripture, we'd be like coincidence, or you could say God, right, that scripture is supposed to remind us of other parts of scripture. And here's one that an author said, I just never thought about before, but it's great. We should expect this though from a perfectly wise divine author. He said this. The verbs take and eat describe a very simple act in the garden. And that act however required a very costly remedy. For the Lord himself would have to taste death before these verbs became verbs of salvation. Or Jesus took and ate took our sin on himself so that he could say at this table, he could say, take and eat my body for your salvation. What an amazing connection that we see between these things because that's exactly what we need, right? To recognize the fact that this, this uh, the dire consequences, that if I had thought far enough, I would have another because it's so great with the parallelism. I'm so proud of myself to have that. And the alliteration today, uh, Jesus. I forget alliteration, right? That's, that's point five. That's what we'll talk about next week because the answer to all of these things, right, takes us to Jesus because of what happened in the garden, Jesus would have to suffer on the cross and it was foreordained to do that, but he did that, taking, taking the sin that you have so willingly committed, right, the times when you have doubted his own goodness and you have, you have said his word was false and rejected it, And you have complained or rejected his plan, he took all of that sin and all of the guilt that we multiply, and he took it on himself. He can say, So if you eat my flesh and drink of my blood, then right, then you're with me. You're righteous in my righteousness. And we who have come to trust in Christ, that's what we do when we come to the table, right? We we own our own personal Genesis three fall, which happens just day after day after day. We just repeat this. We own that. We don't run from God. We don't try to cover ourselves with fig leaves. We don't do any of those things. We just lay ourselves bare before God to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. That's That's the gospel that flows out of Genesis 3 and brings us to this table. Have you taken of Jesus by faith in his life and death and resurrection? That's the answer for your guilt and for your, your sinful shame. Are you covered or are you naked before God? If you're covered in his righteousness, not your works, his righteousness, you've, you've cried out to him for mercy, which he always answers, right? Always gives us mercy, grace to help in our time of need. If you are Christ's, then he comes to this table, says reenact this, right? Take and eat of me to be strengthened. We're a needy people. and God has met our needs in Christ. Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Take this cup and drink it. It's the new covenant in my blood. So if you're a follower of Christ, Christ calls you to come and take and eat and drink. If you're not a follower of Christ, as we've said before, the table is is not for you. It's not just by putting bread or, or drinking anything that you can be saved but you must be saved you need to be forgiven consider the gospel consider your sin consider christ cry out to him for forgiveness and then you will be welcomed to fellowship with him at his table let's pray